Well, this morning we're continuing our look at the therefores of the resurrection, particularly on the therefore go theme, taking the gospel, taking the resurrection out into the world. As individuals, but particularly as the church, being goers or being senders, in some way we're all both. We go into the communities the Lord has sent us, and we ought not make the mistake of thinking that you're not a missionary if you don't go off to some dark place in Africa, right, or to India, or to some third world place where you're going to have to suffer that way. In in a small M sense, as we've talked about, we are all missionaries. We all take the light of the gospel into our little communities, whether we're full-time, professional, if you will, evangelists. Nonetheless, we bear the evangel. We bear the good news. We bear the gospel. And so we've been thinking about these texts, calling us to go into all nations and make disciples, calling us to go because if they don't hear, if we're not sent, they won't hear. If they don't hear, they won't believe. If they don't believe, they won't call. If they won't call on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. Last week, we saw Isaiah receive his call and his commission to go. An unworthy servant, to be sure, a man of unclean lips in in amongst the people of unclean lips. But Isaiah was able to go with great enthusiasm because he was made aware of that fact. He saw the holiness of God He encountered it, if you will. He was flattened by his own sin, but he was lifted up by the grace and mercy of God, had the hot coals of the altar placed upon his lips, and knowing himself now to be or have been forgiven, he had the ooh-ooh, send me, uh, response to that proclamation as the Lord said, who will go? And the Lord sent Isaiah out, you will remember, into a difficult circumstance, An unexpected one we reflected upon because he said, go Isaiah and allow your words to harden their hearts. That hearing, hearing, they may never hear and understand. Seeing, seeing, they may never perceive until until I'm satisfied, until their city is laid waste. Then I will redeem a remnant. And if you remember, we took from that a, a, a liberation of sorts because it reminded us that If you were Isaiah and went out and preached the evangel, went out and preached the good news, the beautiful news, the news that makes the feet beautiful on the mountains, the one who declares our Lord reigns, the one who brings the good news of our deliverance, and yet people weren't listening. People weren't falling on their knees and saying, like they do with Peter in the day of Pentecost, what then must we do to be saved? If they weren't doing that, Isaiah should not be wringing his hands wondering, oh no. What am I doing wrong? I've got to work harder. I've got to say it more winsomely. I've got to say it more compellingly. No, the Lord is doing his work through the faithful preaching of the word. That is to say, whether we as listeners, and I'll throw myself in here as well because I'm hearing this sermon here as, even as I'm preaching it. But as we together hear the word that I'm preaching right now, God is doing his work on you. I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to be more winsome. I don't have to tell better stories. I don't have to use alliteration. I don't have to put my points together more clearly in order to make it effective. I'm responsible to do that. The Lord will judge me for a good or bad sermon. But here's what I do know. He is doing his work in you through what I preach. And he's doing his work through me as well. A work unto glory or a work unto damnation. A work unto softening or a work unto hardening. And you as well, when you go out and preach it, when you go out and be the light of the world, it is not your job to convert for you do not have the power to do it. 
That's not something God has given you to do. Your job is to be a witness. Your job is to declare. And we come to this again today. Today we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, a text that, as Mark said in our next table talk, we're going to talk about apologetics. And this passage here is sort of a, a, a touchstone text for apologetics, particularly verse 15. If you've ever read anything on apologetics, if you've ever thought about apologetics, I have no doubt you have heard this verse, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, I don't want to just look at that text today. I want to look at the entirety of the text we're looking at, starting in verse 13. Let me go ahead and read it just because we do have people listening online who may not have it. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, I want to back up off of verse 15 so we do get the context because Peter is not just giving us a verse on apologetics. He's not speaking to people and saying, look, you all need to go be apologists just like you all need to go be evangelists, right? Defenders of the faith. Peter is speaking to a church in a real historical context. And the context that he is speaking into as I've mentioned already in the in the uh, word of exhortation today, is a church that is in exile. You see this, uh, it, you kind of get the feel of this. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, the way Peter opens his, his uh, letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. So people have scattered out of Jerusalem, okay? The persecution has come to Jerusalem, and those who are followers of Christ have scattered abroad the Roman Empire. To the, so literally they are exiled from their old home. They're, they're scattered around the Roman Empire. But Peter's also going to play on this business of exile. You'll see this in, in 1 Peter 2. That Peter plays on the image of exile. They are literally exiled from their homes. They've had to run away. They're, they're in the dispersion. They've left Jerusalem. But in another deep sense, we're spiritual exiles. We're all away from our home. We're all like on, in the wilderness from Egypt to home, back home to Canaan. We're all like Israelites who have fled Jerusalem and now are living in Babylon in exile, looking for the day when the Lord brings all the exiles back home, right? So Peter is playing on that, they're exiles. So he says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Athia, Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of the sprinkling of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to people who are exiled, just as we, spiritually so, are exiles, Christians, if you will, living in Babylon. And as such, living in Babylon, you are in the midst of a culture that is not friendly to the faith. Now, granted, there may be times in which it feels friendly, Daniel found friendship with Nebuchadnezzar. 
Uh, he was he was a servant in Babylon, and he was a good servant, and he was a faithful man. And with friendship and kindness. I mean, Joseph ends up in Egypt. He's in exile, right? Jo- Joseph, the, the of the of the brothers, the, the sons of, of Jacob. Joseph goes to exile, finds finds complete horror there. He's sold into slavery, but he meets Potiphar, and Potiphar is a friend. Potiphar becomes a friend to to Jacob uh, to Joseph. Everything Joseph does, his hand blesses, you know, the Lord blesses, and Potiphar likes Joseph. Actually, spares his life when his wife turns against him and lies about him. I mean, what what slave would survive that kind of lie from the the wife of a lord, you know? And but 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 Joseph does it because he's got a friend in Potiphar. But he's in prison, and then he becomes the friend of Pharaoh. And he's blessed and he's made the right-hand man. I mean, he's in exile, but at times, you know, exile can be good. It can feel good. But then there comes a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph and he enslaves the people. And that's what can happen in exile as well. So living in exile is a dicey place to be. It's it's a place that, yeah, you may have moments where it feels nice here. It feels like you're welcome. But do not grow comfortable there. You're still in Babylon. You're still in Egypt. You're still in a place where ultimately they're hostile to you and to your God. And when that hostility kind of makes its way to the surface, it's going to be rough. And that's what Peter is preparing his church for. This is a book about suffering. You read 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book about suffering in Christ. Chapter 4. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the fiery trial comes upon you. But inasmuch as you suffer with Christ, rejoice. This is a book about Christian suffering. And it's in that context of Christian suffering in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward the faith. Don't forget, Peter will be executed under Emperor Nero. And Emperor Nero is 60 A.D., you're, you're kind of on the front end of real hardcore Christian persecution. And you're going to have now emperors throughout the Roman Empire until the time of Constantine in 312 AD that are going to have seasons of really intense persecution. And then other seasons where it's not. Emperors were not bothered by Christianity. But then you have some emperors who were bent on destroying Christianity and persecuting the church and obviously some horrific ways. And this isn't only true of Rome. It's true even now. There are places in the world where there's tremendous and intense Christian persecution. We are not there yet. I don't I don't want to overstate the case that we have in America. But I think what we can feel is that increasing hostility toward the Christian faith. And therefore, it would be wise of us, I think, to read through 1 Peter. It would be wise of us to absorb what Peter is saying to a church that was not dealing with that kind of Diocletian-level persecution that was going to come later in the Roman Empire, but it was heading there. It was heading there at the time Peter's writing. And we're, of course, not there. But who knows where we're heading? Who knows where the intensity, there there seems to be an intense uh, 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 revulsion of the Christian faith within our culture. It's growing. As such, how are we to approach it? And we're not, this isn't a sermon series on all of 1 Peter, but I, I feel it's important to feel that context so that I think here we can, we, we should feel quick to relate to Peter and to his audience. Well, what does Peter challenge us with just in this text? Verse 13, 
And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now that verse is a perplexing verse because just at the outset, it seems as if the answer, it's like, it's almost like Peter's asking a rhetorical question like, who will do you harm if you do what is good and right? And you're like, you, it's one of those questions. This is why like when I ask questions to my classes, Emma said this to me the other day. She said, dad, the reason when you're, I'm asking what seems like a very obvious question, a simple like rhetorical question and no one is answering. Like they're all silent. And I remember putting that to the class once, like, what the heck? I'm, I just keep me moving here. When I ask a simple rhetorical question, give it to me. And Emma said, because it, it, it seems so obvious that no one wants to say it because if you're wrong, it's going to really be bad. And, and I'm like, hmm, yeah, that actually makes sense. Like, I probably wouldn't answer either. And Peter seems to ask a rhetorical question that you think you know what the answer is, but reality tells you something different. And who is he will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Like, if you do good, who's going to bother you? And you think you want to say, Peter, it seems like the answer you want is no one. It seems like a pretty simple rhetorical question. But that just doesn't comport with reality in my world. Who will do you harm if you do what is good? Um... A lot of people will. Like if you stand up for righteousness, it's like it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you stick your head up there and speak for rights. Like you're just asking to be slapped. That's why people don't do it. You help somebody and next thing you know, you're sued for it. You, you, you say the right thing and they, they shout you down. You try to stand up for righteousness and all hell breaks loose. I mean, just look at what's going on in, in our country on this abortion issue. I mean, God bless any justice that would stand up and say, hey, you know what? Not good constitutional law. Hey, this should go back to the states. They're not even defending the life of the unborn. They're just defending the Constitution at that point. But but even if they were to defend the unborn, I mean, it like like the demons come out. Like you you stand up and you say something that you, you think is good or righteous. Who will harm you? Um, everyone. But it seems like the answer you're looking for, Peter, is... No one, it just doesn't comport. But I think in some sense, Peter is saying something deeper because he immediately goes on to say, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, hmm. well, wait a second, it seemed like the answer you were just looking for was, oh, if I do good, if I just do good, I'll cruise through this life. If I just do the right thing, if I stand for righteousness, I'll be able to navigate my way. The, the, the authorities won't bother me if I just stand up for righteousness. It seems like that's what you're saying, Peter. But Peter is not saying that. He's going to end for you to suffer for what is good. So he anticipates suffering for what is good. Well, then why the rhetorical question? Who will harm you if you do what is right? But the answer, I think, comes for us in understanding that Peter is not saying, who, who of us will suffer if we do right? No, that's not what he's saying. But he's asking kind of a, a Romans 8, you know, who can stand against us kind of question. Who can ultimately harm us? If we do what is right and suffer for it, who can actually do evil against us? Who can truly harm us? Oh, you're going to suffer for it. That's not what I'm saying. But you cannot be harmed. So do what is right. 
In this conflicted world where everything is upside down, good is declared evil and evil is declared good. I'm sorry, we live in a culture in which, I, when I say the demons are coming out, I am not just being rhetorical or hyperbolic. You have people congregating in this country, uh, marching into churches in Handmaid's Tales outfit, saying, praise God for abortion. They're mocking the church. Praise God for abortion. Praise God for abortion. It's just like, sick. There's a darkness and a sickness I'm not saying it's the whole country. I'm not saying it's everybody in this country. I'm not even saying it's a majority in this country. But it's in this country. A darkness of celebrating what is evil. Celebrating death. Celebrating the, the transitioning of little children from boys to girls and girls to Celebrating this. Whatever the complexities of a child's psychology, I'm not trying to answer all that. I'm not trying to say there aren't real issues in, in each individual case. I'm, I'm not dealing with mothers who have had abortions and, and who have wrestled with things and have made terrible decisions or made brutal decisions. Those on individual cases, you have to deal with all those, of course. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a culture that celebrates these things. Celebrates things that should drive us to tears. You are in a sick culture when it does this. And when it is not immediately shot down and shouted down, if you will, culturally speaking, given no attention or mocked in and of itself, but it's given airtime. It's given airtime in our culture. We are in a sick culture. Okay, We're in a sick culture in which we ought to be prepared to suffer for what is right. This is hard to say because we're not used to this. We are not used to this. But we are in a place where we ought to be prepared to suffer for doing good. But do it knowing this. Who can harm you? The rhetorical question is meant to give the answer, no one? You say with a question mark. No, Peter, I think that's what you're looking for. Yes, that's what I'm looking for, class. No one can harm you when you do what is right. Now, if you suffer for it, and you will, you will suffer for it, but no one can harm you. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, he says in 14, say, you're blessed. You're blessed. This is why the answer to the rhetorical question is no one. Because even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are actually blessed. When they bring that kind of harm, that suffering to you, what they think is inflicting harm, they blessing on you. Great is your reward. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, when he gave this counterintuitive list of beatitudes, of blessings, of happinesses. He ends that after these amazing blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are this. Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness sake. 
Blessed are you when they persecute you for my name's sake. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward. For so they also did to the prophets before you. You stand in a line of suffering for righteousness. And when it comes to you, when you are suffering for righteousness sake, rather than saying, oh no, I'm being harmed, rejoice for you are actually being blessed. You are blessed because, and, and again, if you flip over to First Peter, uh, we won't, but over in First Peter 4, when he says, in as much as you suffer with Christ, rejoice. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you, but in as much as you suffer with Christ, rejoice for great is your reward. Peter, Peter is hearing the voice of his master ringing in his ears and he's spilling it out. A voice, by the way, which he did not hear when he caved, fearing harm, fearing great harm. He denied his Lord three times because he feared what they could do, what mere man could do. But now, having received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter, like, has vision. He can see now that the fog, the, 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 he couldn't see clearly what Jesus was and what he was doing and what the realities of the kingdom were. And he was looking through a fog. And that's why when Jesus told him what it was going to be, he's like, no, Lord, it will never be that way. And when Jesus tried to wash his feet, he's like, no, Lord, you won't do it. I mean, he's not saying that because he doesn't respect Jesus. He just can't see. What Jesus is doing. So blessed are you when they persecute you. Okay, I don't know. Because the first time he gets persecuted, he denies his Lord. He does fear what man can do to him. But now he does not. And he will actually be crucified in following his Lord. Knowing that nothing can harm him. But if he suffers for righteousness sake, he is actually blessed. That's really hard. Well, how do we do this? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And now here, um, uh, Peter quotes Isaiah 8. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Isaiah, in Isaiah 8, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and telling the people there, do not be troubled. Things are falling apart. You actually have kingdom, the kingdom of Israel conspiring with Egypt to, to, to turn on Judah. There's a conspiracy going here against them. And in Isaiah, he says, do not fear that. And don't run around saying, oh, conspiracy, conspiracy, even though there really is a conspiracy. Do not fear them. And then he says in Isaiah 8, but fear God, but fear God. Do not fear them, even though they really are conspiring to kill you. But I'm telling you right now, don't fear them. Right? can come upon you. Don't fear them. Fear the Lord. Keep your eyes here. It's like the Lord, the Lord saying, look at me. No, 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 no. Look at me. Right? To a little child who maybe is distracted. You know? It's like my, my old man saying to me, I've shared with you before, right? Don't you get nervous till you see me get nervous. That's what you tell me. We'd be going into a rough spot. I remember once down in the Bronx. Man, it was rough. And I think he was nervous. But he said to me, hey, 
Don't you get nervous till you see me get nervous. And the father's saying, hey, you fear me. Look here. Don't be distracted by their conspiracies. Don't be distracted by their issues. And, and we need to hear this. Because I'm going to tell you, it will scare you. You will look at what is happening to people who stick their head up. You will look at what happens to people who stand for righteousness or who speak up for righteousness. You will see what happens to them. It will make you sit down. It will make you just hope this thing just blows right over your head and then you can go back to doing what you're doing. So what do you have to do? You have to look here. <laughs> you got, you've got to look to the Lord and so be overwhelmed by the fear of the Lord. And remember, remember Stephen, my brother, preaching that sermon on the fear of the Lord. It's not a, just a per paralyzing fear. Oh no, Lord, you might destroy me. I'm not worried about them destroying me. You might actually destroy me. Remember, Steve said the fear of the Lord is a fear that kind of passes through that and sees what the Lord has done and then is like empowered by it. Right? They come through the Red Sea and then they have the fear of the Lord. It's like, whoa. Just this amazing, like empowering. So we, we need to have that because if we don't have that, if we're not looking at him, if, if we're not allowing him to guide us, then we will be overwhelmed by the wind and the waves, right? You don't look at Jesus who's in your boat. All you can see is the storm and you will be swamped by the storm. So in Isaiah 8, it says, don't fear them. Don't fear the conspiracies. Fear the Lord. And Isaiah, and excuse me, Peter plays on that, but changes, you know, the uh, God, Yahweh, and puts Jesus in there. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Right? Sanctify Christ, I think, is what the, 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 uh, the uh, New King James says, Lord God. But the other translations say, but sanctify Christ in your heart, which I believe is what the text is. And in, in dealing with the New King James and other versions, you have different variants. And they're making an interpretive decision. They say, well, I think he's quoting from Isaiah, and Isaiah says, Lord God. Yeah, no, but that's the point of what Peter's doing. He's saying Christ is the Lord God. That's why he says Christ there. But sanctify Christ in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Okay, so now let's look at verse 15 in the context of this living in exile in a place where you are going to suffer for doing what is right, but in which you cannot be harmed for doing what is right. So what is the exhortation to us? Number one, sanctify Christ in your heart. And that is Peter's way of saying what Isaiah said. Don't fear them, fear the Lord. Don't fear the American culture. Don't fear the crazy crowds. Don't fear the hostility of your neighbor. Don't, don't fear this. How do you not fear it? By sanctifying Christ in your heart, setting him apart, by looking at him. Keep your eyes on him. So that's the first thing we have to do. Sanctify Christ in your heart. Secondly, and from this I get the title of, I chose the title. Always be ready to give a defense. Always be ready. Now here's the call to us to be equipped. Are you ready? If somebody challenges you today about the reason for the hope within you, 
If somebody pushes you about your faith, especially as it becomes odder and odder, you know, again, not many years ago, everybody kind of got the gist of the Christian faith. Whether they were Christians or not, it's so, it was so woven into the culture that everybody kind of got it. A lot of people who weren't even Christians knew Bible verses. You just know, you know them. You know what terms mean. You know what ideas were. You knew what the basic golden rule was. You know, you had some vague sense of Christianity. It didn't seem odd. Now it seems odd. And it's getting odder by the day. When pressed then, are you able to give an answer? An apology? That's why we call it apologetics. An apologia? Right? Which means a defense. Right? You stand and give a defense, an explanation. That's technically when, when you say you need to apologize. And we say, well, okay, I'm sorry. Or you tell your kid, hey, you need to apologize. And they say, I'm sorry. That's not an apology. Right? It's not an apology saying you're sorry. An apology is explanation. Now, we don't ever mean it that way. So it's just become say you're sorry. And we go, okay, good. I, now, hey, apologize to your sister. Well, here's why I did it. No, I said apologize. <laughs> he said, well, you, yeah, that's what I'm doing. If you got a kid who knows Greek, then you're in trouble, right? Because they'll say, yeah, I was giving a reason to fence of why I did what I did. Because that's what apologia means. It's apology means a sort of what a lawyer would do. A defense lawyer gives an apology. You know, the, the early church fathers wrote apologies to the emperor. And it wasn't like we're sorry for being Christians. It was... Hey, you're, you're accusing us of things that are not true. You're saying we're cannibals because we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. That's a false accusation. Let us explain. That's an apology. Here's the reason why we say this. Here's the explanation about what we do. And Peter is saying you need to be ready, always ready to do this. To give a reason. Do you know the reason for why you believe what you believe? And again, on the surface, and we'll, we'll spend some time on this in table talk, on the surface we say yes, but then try to imagine a conversation. Be the other guy. Be the other woman pushing back on you, saying that doesn't make any sense. And then ask, am I able to give a reason? Gets a little trickier there, right? Again, because sometimes we hear ourselves talking to one another. We're in a little bit of an echo chamber in here. Where we talk to each other and I just say things and I know you have a whole world of meaning that when I say stuff, it just resonates with you. You're not pushing back because it kind of makes sense to you. I'm going to guess, I take all of you, but I'll take Ben if we had time. I'm sure Ben could share some conversations where, where Ben, I have no doubt, and from conversations that I've had with him, dealing with people for whom this is just not even, it's not even, none of it makes sense. And what they think they know about it is not even true. I've had to deal with international students, students from China. They didn't even have the idea of a, the concept of a personal God. So I've, I've really been challenged of thinking, well, how, do I, how in the world do I explain the reason for my hope? And I don't even know what categories to use where I can communicate this to you. Hard stuff. So it can be very challenging. And I, I just think that we need to be roused from our fatal ease, if you will, in, in thinking through, hey, am, can I explain this? Maybe, maybe as a little test, now I'm getting into Sunday, probably what we should do in Sunday school, but, and we could do this more, but maybe 
thrust yourself into a discussion. See how you do. It's like throwing yourself overboard in water that's not too deep so you can quick scurry to where your feet can touch. But like, but like throw yourself into a difficult conversation with somebody and, and see if you're able, you know, let them push back and find the holes in, in your reasoning. Peter says you need to always be ready. It's like the soldier who's, who's, who's got, you know, he, he's, his finger is not on the trigger. It's near the trigger. It's ready to go, right? He's walking around knowing at any moment I may need to use this thing. I don't have my gun slung over my shoulder, kind of waltzing through, you know, the, 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 the mountains of Afghanistan. You can't do that. I've been mean, listening to a lot of Navy SEAL stuff, so that's why it's something like Right? You can't be waltzing around in you know, Kandahar that way. You gotta like, you gotta have, you gotta have that thing ready. You're, you're alert. You're ready to go. You're ready to use it. And the same thing is true with the sword of the spirit. Your hand's gotta be there. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to explain? Are you ready? And he says, you've always gotta be ready because who knows when somebody might ask you. Which brings us to the next point. He says, and I say weapon, you know what I mean. The sword of the spirit, you know, your reason, defense, obviously. That's what I'm referring to. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. That's convicting to me because who the heck is asking us? Is anybody asking you? And what would it take to get somebody to ask you? for the reason for the hope within you? Like what kind of life would it take for you to provoke such kind of questions in people? I, I really think that in some, I, I tried to tell this to my students the other day, you know, when Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. It's like one, the metaphor, the vision I gave them for this is imagine like a, a parade where everybody's just, you know, they're all marching in lockstep, you know? <laughs> and then, and then there's this oddball. I mean, and it's just, it's impressive to see. Kind of like, you know, sort of the Chinese military. You saw that one time at the end. I mean, it's just like, it's just like legs, you know, kicking. It's like wooden soldiers. A thing of beauty and order. And imagine in all that, they're all marching. And then there's a guy just doing this. <laughs> Sorry for you on audio. You didn't get to witness that, but... You know, and he's hop, skipping and jumping his way through. And like everybody's in order. There's one head just bobbing up and down. And you'd be like, what's that guy's deal? Like, what is, I got to talk to that guy. Like, what is going on there? Like, what does that look like within our cultural scenario? What does it look like? I'm telling you, our culture is marching like the Chinese military. Well, okay, what's it look like for you to be... That person, what does that look like? How can we live in such a way that is just joyful in the midst of despair? That is generous and charitable in the midst of a, a, of a selfish, you know, and materialistic uh, generation. A, a, a suffering that can call itself blessed that would provoke the kind of questions, dude, what is going on? Tell, what, what the heck? Peter anticipates the question. And it's there. I heard uh, my buddy Kevin at Westminster saying this the other day. It's in the question that we ought to be prepared. It, it, Peter does not call us to an aggressive, offensive apologetic. Now, it's not to say we shouldn't do it. We'll look at Table Talk at another verse that kind of pushes us to that. But that's not what he calls us to here. And I love the fact Kevin said this because it's, it's resonating with so much that happens in 
in education of high school students as well. One danger teachers have is to answer questions students aren't asking. And when you do that, which every teacher does, education doesn't stick. So what the good teacher does, and I'm constantly convicted by this and having to push myself to do this better at the high school level, but this is what all our teachers are trying to do at Chapel Field, is not answer questions they haven't asked, but provoke good questions. How can we provoke good questions? Because when the question comes, that's sort of like the, the, the it, it, they're opening up to you. They're saying, feed me. But when you're just peppering them with, you know, with answers to questions they're not asking, it doesn't stick. So, but, and that's what you have here. Peter is saying, don't, you don't have to go out and start answering questions and provoking arguments. Let me tell you why this is true when they're not asking the question. So how can we as Christians, we can talk about this in Sunday school, like practically, how can we provoke the question? Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you. And then I, I, the next point on this, for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And I want to, I want to stick on this for a second because what I take comfort in this is this does not require you to be a professional apologist. It doesn't require you to be a philosopher. It doesn't require you to know all the arguments for God's existence. It doesn't require you to have studied and read books on apologetics. It's like, do you have hope in Christ or not? What he's saying, be ready to give an answer for, is that hope. And do then we live lives that are hope-filled, that can have joy in the midst of sadness, in the midst of despair, in the midst of suffering and trouble, because we have hope that just radiates out of us. I don't have time to go into all the passages, but back into, into chapter 1, verse 3. Listen, because here Peter tells you what the hope is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You have resurrection hope. And that needs to affect your life. It needs to be, it needs to radiate out of you. And you need to be able to explain it. Why do I have this hope? Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And by faith, I am united to him. And I have new life. Death. Everywhere else. There is no hope. No hope. But in Christ. Jesus, remember, remember in, in Revelation 5, when John is weeping. Because there's no one found worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals. If you remember when I preached on that, I made the point. Because the elder then comes to him and says, do not weep. Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed to open the scroll and to lose its seals. Like, there is hope. He's prevailed. But I made the point in there that if you do not know Christ, there is no cause, zero, to stop weeping. Any non-believer who's walking around not weeping is deluded. I'm sorry. They with the realities of death. They may say they have. 
They may say, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Ah, the lights go out when you die. I don't care. It doesn't matter. That's utter despair. And frankly, you should be weeping. And there's no reason to stop weeping except in Christ. But here's the good news. Christ has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. He is the lamb slain yet standing who will wipe away every tear and call his beloved from the grave to dwell with him for all eternity. And he will take death itself and throw it into the lake of fire. And we will be in glory with him. This is the hope, the resurrection, eschatological, glorious hope that is ours. And we need to have it. It needs to affect our lives so that it provokes questions. And we need to be able to give an explanation. And then finally, I'll conclude with this. We are to do all this with gentleness, meekness. And this gets harder the more the heat of the culture turns up. Because the more intense the culture gets, the more we bristle, the more the volume starts to ramp up. We feel like we're being shouted at. We need to shout it back. We need to defend it. We need to be militant. We're actually a little angry. We're, sometimes we're a little angry because we're defensive because I don't know how to explain it that well. And I don't like being pressed like this. And so we kind of respond with anger. Sorry. <laughs> Very easy to do. We feel our culture kind of slipping, and so we get defensive, we get angry, we get grumpy. Peter says, do this like our Lord Jesus did it, who though he was reviled, did not revile in return. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're going to preach through 1 Corinthians this summer. One of the things we're going to learn is, all things are yours. If all things are yours, why you don't have to be insecure. You don't have to be troubled. You don't need to be angry. You're never threatened. Even death, he says, is yours. If nothing can harm you, and even their suffering, even the suffering they provoke is blessing to you, why would you get angry? Well, because we don't believe it. That's why. Because I don't believe it. Because in the moment, I listen to Satan and I don't trust God. That's why I get angry. Because frankly, I don't believe it. I don't trust him. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Look at me. Sanctify me in your heart. Look here. And we're back in the, the loop again. That's where we have to go. When we, when we feel that slipping away, we realize I'm not sanctifying Christ in my heart. Let me go there. I need to look at him. I need to listen to him. Sanctify him in my heart to delight in the hope that I have, to delight in the fact that nothing can harm me even though I may suffer. It is good for you, better for you to suffer for righteousness than for doing wrong. So the charge to us is not to be apologists with the capital A. We'll talk about that at Table Talk. But nonetheless... To be those in a increasingly hostile culture, but nonetheless living in Babylon, we need to be those who do not fear, who trust that nothing but blessing can come to us in Christ, who sanctify Christ in our hearts, who are always ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us to defend, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And because we know the victory that is ours in Christ, 
We need to breathe. And we need to be able to do it with meekness and gentleness, self-control, with love and compassion for those who are screaming their heads off over things that are dark and things that are ugly. Boy, that can stir me to anger. And there's a certain holy anger. Jesus got angry. But Jesus also wept over Jerusalem. And it should stir me to compassion for the sickness of their soul, praying that the Lord would heal and bring forgiveness and bring new life and fresh air to their poisoned souls. So we do with meekness and gentleness. And may that be our commission as we go this week and for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we've grown comfortable in a society that has left us alone, if not even praised us for our righteousness at times. But Father, as things grow more dicey, as things get more challenging, sometimes even becoming hostile, may you help us to look at you, to keep our eyes on you, to sanctify Christ in our hearts to live as people of hope who know the inheritance that is ours, reserved, untouchable, undefilable in heaven. No one can harm it. So that with confidence, peace, meekness, gentleness, we can suffer well. We can bear hope in the midst of the darkness. We could, if called upon, die for our Lord, as Peter himself did. But Father, we confess our own weakness in this. We confess that we don't always believe it, that we resort back to our own instincts on these things. We give ear to the voice of Satan who calls us to take a sword with us as we go to the garden, to be prepared to fight and lop off Malchus's ear. Father, that's our instinct, and we pray that you forgive us, and we pray that you would guard us. So bless us, all of us, that we might be faithful servants of yours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.